Welcome to the Parish Art Museum podcast, where we aspire to provide opportunities for learning, sharing, and celebrating the many innovative and pioneering artists who call the East End home. Come back each week to find new and impactful experiences in the arts. I'll just start by saying a couple of words about Michael as my guest. He is the contributing editor for Vanity Fair, which he has been since 1986. And he's written more than 75 articles and stories for that magazine, including some of my all-time favorites, Duel of the Mega Dealers, uh-huh, right. which is uh, the war between Larry Gagosian and David Zwerner, the Battle of Sag Harbor, historic homes, pricey penthouses, and scores of subpoenas, another Hamptons whodunit, Oh, yes, that was Who Drained Georgica Pond. Uh-huh, I remember that. Pond, yes. And my all-time favorite, what does Glafira Rosales's guilty pleas in the Nodler Gallery forgery case mean for Anne Friedman and the rest of the players? Which I think wins the prize as the world's longest magazine article <laughs> title. But for those of you who may not know, there was a, a you know, huge controversy over forged contemporary modern masters out of one of the most respected, previously respected galleries in the United States that blew up into a, a huge thing. And you did a great job of, a wonderful story. Ex- of exploring that. Yeah. Um, but you've also written several books, uh-huh. uh, including The Car That Could, The Inside Story of GM's Revolutionary Electric Vehicle. And was that made into a movie? No, what you're thinking of is a very good documentary um, that I think was called Who Killed the Electric Car? Um, And it turned out that GM killed its own car because they didn't like the fact that if it succeeded, then they would have to make more of them. (laughs) Um, And and then the oil and gas industry would be mad. Right, right. And another, the, uh, with your co-author Mark, Mark Plotkin, The Killers Within the Deadly Rise of Drug-Resistant Bacteria, which you wrote in 2002, but which of course is a huge issue right now. Well, you're starting to see a theme here. These books come out early, <laughs> and I missed the wave completely. Um, but the subjects are so fascinating, I couldn't help myself. So before we start talking about this book, I. It's interesting, you've also written biographies of Erwin Shaw and Andrew Cuomo. There's a real difference, I guess, between the kind of articles that you write for Vanity Fair and the kind of things that you go in more in depth, like the books that you've written. Can you talk a little bit about that and your attitude towards these two different kinds of creativity? Sure. Well, I always felt that um, books were the, the sort of substantive balance to Vanity Fair. I loved working for Vanity Fair. I loved writing stories for them. A good Vanity Fair story when it came out was, was a really exciting experience. But I just felt that didn't justify a whole lifetime. And so I, I began writing books. And, I, and I, I wanted the subjects, indeed, to be really sort of oppositional, if you will, to the sort of things that Vanity Fair runs. So I've loved those books. Unfortunately, none of them leads to the next. You know, it's kind <laughs> of a zigzagging career. And I've just had to make my peace with that. I had written a bit about art for Vanity Fair. I, I, I mean, there, there are several Vanity Fair stories on contemporary art. And I'd always been drawn to the idea of writing a Vanity Fair story about Larry Gagosian. And oddly enough, every time I went to my editor, Graydon, and asked if I could do this, he swatted me down. And I eventually realized that there was a reason for this, that Larry Gagosian was a sacred cow at Condé Nast. Mm-hmm. After all, Cy Newhouse was one of his great clients. No way were they ever going to run a story about Gagosian. <laughs> but I kept it in my head, and when Graydon left and when I sort of put a little distance between the magazine and myself, I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to write about him now, but not to just do a biography of him? Because fascinating as he is, I just felt that a lot of people wouldn't want to read a biography of, of, of him. I, had, I was newly and bitterly experienced with the idea of people not wanting to write a biography about the person you've just written the biography about, namely Cuomo. <laughs> Nobody wanted to read about Cuomo. But uh, I thought that maybe there was a bigger book mm-hmm. about contemporary art into which Larry would sort of be the tent pole, if you will. And, and that's what I began trying to do. What is it about the art world that interests you so much? Well, of course, those crazy prices. <laughs> Like anyone else, you know, following the news, I'm fascinated that someone's willing to pay $91 million for a rabbit. But I, I also really wanted to learn. I, I mean, I guess I'm the sort of layman who goes into the Metropolitan Museum's contemporary art 
rooms and can tell you probably which ones, or I was, a, a Jackson Pollock from a de Kooning. But I didn't know many of the other paintings on the walls. I didn't know the stories of those artists. And I'd always sort of wanted to learn, and, and this became my excuse to, to dive in. Well, it's an interesting kind of marriage of you know, learning about various artists, um, which you obviously had to do in order to get to where you got to with this book. Mm. But it also, of course, is a, it's kind of a really an expose on the world of the art market. And actually, there's one sentence that, uh, that you write in your book about the pivotal moment when it went from being the art world yes. to the art market. That's probably my favorite sentence in the book. And I did you not know it. that. Yeah. <laughs> no, because it's, it's so critical that what I say is actually, it was right at the time that Leo Castelli died. And we can talk more about him and his place uh, in this story from almost the beginning. But it was so important that that, that happened at, um, at the time it did, which was about 1999. And so his death in 1999 really was a turning point. Essentially, the, the, the 90s had been a, a time of struggle in the art market um, after a terrible recession at about 1990. But by 1999, the economy was coming back, the art market was coming back, and, and, and there was a lot more money somehow getting pushed into this industry uh, or business. Uh, in fact, between 2002 and 2008, the art market grew from $21 billion to $63 billion. Mm. It, it tripled in six years. And you know, there are a lot of reasons for that, and we could talk about those, they, you know, ranging from art fairs, art advisors, to a new uh, minted class of billionaires, really. And when did art become a commodity? And that was another phrase that you used in right. your book, that it was almost like commodities trading. Well, it's funny. You, you would think, based on what we've said so far, that that might have been around 2000 or mm -hmm. something, or more recently. But one of the first people to uh, decry this terrible commoditization of art was Peggy Guggenheim in 1959. Mm. She had uh, come from Europe before the war with a lot of art, which she had bought from the artists who produced it. And she had started a gallery on 57th Street uh, called The Art of This Century. And she um, uh, discovered Pollock, wasn't sure what she thought about him yet. She was interested in other quite contemporary artists. And yet when the war ended, she decided that she'd sat in a little gallery long enough and she wanted to go back to her palazzo in Venice. Uh, so she did, and, um, and she decided she didn't want to take all the art with her. Uh, these were, this was done by artists who were, who were living, who were in New York, who needed a, 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 a dealer. So she put them on to a dealer named Betty Parsons. And we could talk about her, she's fascinating. But the point is, when Peggy Guggenheim went to Venice, in the late 40s. She didn't really return mm -hmm. until 1959. And when she did, she was absolutely gobsmacked. She said, I can't believe what's happened in my, you know, in my absence. Uh, people are buying uh, art like shares of stock. They're just uh, horrible. There's no sense of uh, appreciation of the aesthetics of what they're buying. It's all like the stock market. So that was 1959. Well, that was prescient of her, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, in a sense, yes, it was. Uh, and, and there were just various degrees of that as it went along. I mean, one of the important sort of um, art as a commodity influencers, if you will, is, is Jeffrey Deitch, who uh, was a very interesting character. He came to New York in the early 80s, and he um, had gone to, to business school, and he had studied the art of business. And he had this idea that art could actually be handled by the big investment banks. That if you, you know, were just sort of patient enough and you got them to, to buy a whole bunch of art and let it sit there, they would eventually appreciate in value. Mm -hmm. And it did. Mm -hmm. and, and that became an enormous contribution on his part. Um, he's also gone on to be a dealer. And so he becomes one of the characters in my book for that, uh, one of the real multi-hyphenates, a dealer and an advisor. He was a museum director mm -hmm. in California. Briefly. <laughs> Briefly, uh, to yes, um, dramatically. But I think his contribution to uh, this sort of evolving market of art as a market is, is actually a, a positive one. Yeah, and, and the bank's mm -hmm. involvement in, in contemporary art in particular 
uh, always seemed to be a kind of an odd thing to me. Um, mm -hmm. I remember when I was at the New Museum of Contemporary Art when they were on uh, Broadway between Prince and Houston, and mm. at the corner was the Citibank. Had a big Namjoon Pike in the window, and they had their art advisor uh, that was not only building the collection for Citibank, as you described, you know, it's like putting gold bullions in a vault, mm -hmm. but also, you know, advising clients on using art as investment, and you know, and then creating a whole system where people could actually borrow using their artworks as collateral. Yes. And Larry Gagosian says something in your book about how he never used the artwork that he owned as collateral to borrow money for general operating, but yes. that he would use his art as collateral to buy other art. Right. With the knowledge and confidence, I suppose, that he had, or hubris, that he knew that he could, he could monetize Right. very quickly whatever it was that he bought with a loan and then pay back the loan. That's right. He, did, he said that in the early 90s when reporters were wondering if he would survive this terrible recession that had really hit everybody. Uh, had to do with the first Gulf War and a lot of economic factors. Um, and so he was clarifying, you know, don't worry about me. I'll be fine if I use the art I own. It is only to, to buy and sell it. It's not keeping my business going. Yeah. One of the things that really emerged to me as an area of interest in the book was how Andy Warhol and Jean-Michel Basquiat became like the axis of, mm -hmm. of this changeover mm -hmm. from the art world to the art market. And you're, you're very clear, especially with Andy Warhol, about how he went from being you know, a solitary artist to being a factory. Sure. And how, again, that axis also worked to create the Larry Gagosian Leo Castelli axis. And so mm -hmm. all of these things kind of feed into each other and yes. build this kind of interesting tapestry of interactions between dealers and artists. They do. I mean, since that begins in 1979, which is when Gagosian came to, to New York from California. And the, the first sort of fascinating access was how he became a, a close uh, ally of Castelli. We need to fill in a little bit more about Castelli for those who don't know about him. But suffice it to say for here that Leo Castelli in 1979 was still arguably the most powerful dealer, contemporary art dealer in New York. He had overseen the whole pop art uh, uh, movement, really. All those people were his artists. Um, he was getting older, and, and maybe that made him a little more um, philosophical about the young man who presented himself one day in 1979 as a guy who just wanted to learn from Castelli. And uh, Gagosian, to anybody's uh, immediate uh, apprehension, was um, very aggressive, didn't seem to care about the niceties of art, wanted to just buy and sell and make money. And everybody thought that uh, Castelli would uh, basically loathe a guy like this. But he was quite admiring of him. He, In a sense, he, he wished that he had had more of that moxie himself. He was a, a debonair European who spoke five languages, but he didn't have the, uh, the muscle and the ambition in a funny way that uh, Gagosian did. So, so that's one interesting access. And then, uh, yes, Gagosian, uh, well, Warhol and, um, uh, Warhol and Gagosian and Warhol and um, Basquiat. Uh, it's just a very interesting time. You know, again, this sort of points us back toward the beginning of this story, but uh, Warhol uh, became a, uh, um, a Castelli artist in, in about 1964, 65. Mm -hmm. Initially, Castelli pushed him away, finding him sort of fey, and, and, and the other artists were a little skeptical of him, too. Besides, Roy Lichtenstein had already been brought aboard, and his style was a little close to what Warhol was doing. Mm -hmm. At any rate, that's, that's sort of where Warhol's uh, art career began, and Castelli was definitely the nurturer of it. And then it sort of took a strange turn in the mid-'80s when um, uh, Basquiat and Warhol became, as you allude to, as close as, as they were. For a while, we're very close friends doing art together, rolling around on the floor with paint on them, <laughs> um, until they had a, a, a sort of terrible... Break up, uh, break up, if you will, and uh, uh, and of course, all too soon, Andy was was dead, and Basquiat didn't follow him too far. Behind. Right, exactly. The two uh, just <coughs> shocking deaths of the '80s uh, within a year of each other, 
Warhol first and then uh, uh, Basquiat. Well, let's do talk about Leo Castelli and, and Larry Gagosian. It seems to me that essentially what's set up in this book, and I wouldn't say you set it up because I think that it's, it was, you know, bred in the bone of these two men. Leo Castelli seemed to me to represent the kind of old fashioned art mm -hmm. dealer who was a person who actually cared about the artists, oh, yeah. wanted to work with emerging artists, wanted to work in primary market, mm -hmm. nurtured their careers, in fact, was the person who more or less invented the artist stipend yes. to help artists produce. Yep. Larry, on the other hand, was very transactional in his approach yes. to art, and I'm basically paraphrasing what you wrote, um, and dealt mostly in secondary market and never worked with an artist that didn't have a proven market already. Right. And so talk a little bit about how Leo became the kind of person he did, right. and then your impressions of how Larry became the kind of person sure. he did. Let me clarify terms here, because <clears throat> I came to this subject so much as a layman that I had to learn things like primary market and secondary market. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe you all know that, but I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> primary market is when a dealer discovers an artist for the first time, and and actually nurtures that artist's career, and when he sells the work, that's the, the first or primary sale. Anything after that, anything and everything, is secondary. Mm -hmm. uh, and often it involves uh, the, the collector uh, selling it to another collector, or it involves the collector uh, putting it up for auction. But, but it's, it, they're two very different ways of selling, and they attract uh, often different kinds of, of dealers. And, and yes, Castelli, uh, from the time he got to uh, New York after um, a, a rough uh, pre-war uh, peregrination, if you will, he didn't immediately become a dealer. Uh, he, he was actually, I mean, he really was the antithesis of Larry Gagosian. He was a very uh, unambitious guy. Um, he worked for his father-in-law's knitwear uh, factory somewhere up the Hudson. And when he could, on Saturdays, he would just walk around the, the art galleries and, and befriend people who were, who were in the business. And uh, eventually, he even uh, curated a show or two, an important show, uh, for Sidney Janis, who was an important dealer at that point. And when he decided that he would, um, that it was finally time for him to start a gallery, he was then about 50 years old. Um, and he just decided he would have this in his, uh, in his in-laws' home, the, the, the townhouse where they lived at 4 East 77th Street. And what he needed, however, um, uh, was a couple artists. Um, and he found one in Robert Rauschenberg, and he was looking for another. And I tell the story, but I'll tell it quickly here because it's one of the great stories. That he uh, went to the Jewish Museum at look at a new show of young uh, abstract expressionists, and he saw a, a Target painting by someone whose name was Jasper Johns, and he'd never heard of this person. He just sort of logged it in his brain to look that person up at some point. Then he went with his wife Ileana Sonnabend. Uh, down to Rauschenberg's uh, studio on Pearl Street, I think it was. And, and by the way, Ileana Sonnabend, whom he had met in Europe and married, uh, is said by many people to really actually be the better, to have the better eye mm. than, than Castelli himself. And that it was often she who was saying, Leo, you must take this on, you must take on. And that's what she had done with Rauschenberg. So they went down to, to see Rauschenberg's new work and to make uh, arrangements for it to be shown in the first, uh, first days of his new gallery. And Rauschenberg gave him a drink that, that had no ice in it. And Castelli said, do you mind if I have some ice? And, and Rauschenberg said, well, um, I don't have any ice, but my downstairs neighbor Jasper might. And <laughs> Castelli went, Jasper, Jasper? <laughs> And indeed, it was Jasper Johns. And Castelli went downstairs and opened the door. And as he said, it was like a coup de foudre. Mm -hmm. He had never seen anything. It was, the, it was the happiest day of his life. All these Jasper Johns paintings along the wall, the world had not yet seen them. Interestingly, the dealer Betty Parsons, who along with Sidney Janis was really the first wave of, of dealers for contemporary art after the war, had intended to come see this new artist, Jasper Johns, but she hadn't quite gotten around <laughs> to it. You and, snooze, you lose. And, and <laughs> it was, it was the, the biggest regret she had of her life, she later said. So at any rate, yes, uh, this was the kind of dealer that Castelli was. And he um, you know, went on to represent James Rosenquist, Roy Lichtenstein, mm -hmm. Mark Rothko, um, uh, Frank Stella, um, 
Robert and, Morris, Richard Serra, right, everybody. right, all all these guys. They weren't, you know, they weren't all conveniently in the same box of pop art, right. if you will. Um, Stella was in his own place, <laughs> for instance. But um, but the point was that Stella was being a an impassioned primary artist dealer, mm -hmm. and you mentioned the stipends. Uh, Frank Stella told me that he got a stipend, needed a stipend up up until 1969, so nearly a decade as, as a Castelli artist, he would, uh, he would get money from Castelli every month. And what shocked me about those early years, I mean, it's one thing to kind of know it in your head, it's another thing to actually read it. Frank Stella's stipend was $75 a month. I know, it, it paid and it, his... And it paid money. everything, and it made it so he didn't have to work a, a, another job. Yeah, yeah. $75 made a huge difference in his life. Isn't That's that right. amazing? That's right. Um, the other thing that uh, Castelli sort of pioneered in was this network, uh, network of other dealers. Yeah. Uh, later, Gagosian would take it further by actually building all these galleries around the world, but Castelli simply reached out to, to dealers whom he liked in, in, in the States and in Europe. He, as I say, he was a very continental <coughs> guy, so he had a lot of connections uh, or could uh, accumulate them. And by doing this, he would, he would give I think it was 50% of each sale to the other dealer. So he was only making a fraction uh, or half of what he would have made if he'd sold the art in, at his own gallery. But the fact is, he was selling much more art. Yeah. And it, it, it drew a lot of interesting people to him. One of my favorite characters in the book is um, Irving Blum, <laughs> who was at that time just a dashingly handsome matinee idol of a guy. He always reminded me of Cary Grant. Yeah, with sort of black, slick back mm -hmm. hair. And now I, I've just learned only at this late stage that his son is the most famous producer in Hollywood. Yes. I, I, I just, it wasn't part of my research. I never <laughs> came across it, and he didn't say anything about it. Mm -hmm. But at any rate, Irving Blum was starting out himself, but didn't have much art to show. And so he pleaded with uh, Castelli to let him take a few Jasper John. In fact, these works in bronze, these cans, you know, the, the mm -hmm. beer cans. And Castelli said, well, you know, uh, Jasper only makes a small amount of art, and I really, uh, I don't think I can actually pass you on to him. And there was sort of a pause, and then Castelli said, well, but take his number, see what happens. And so uh, Irving Blum went down, visited Jasper John, saw these bronzed uh, beer cans. And there's a funny joke about that, that, that uh, someone said, uh, oh, it's de Kooning, I think, said, that Castelli, he could sell anything. He could, he could sell two cans of beer. <laughs> and so that's why Jasper John's made the cans, to see if they could be sold. And of course, they could. Another great story about Irving Blum is that uh, he cultivated Warhol. He was this the guy. Is a great story. And, and one little detail I haven't seen in the many write-ups of this is that he went with his fellow uh, gallery director from. They had started a gallery in, in L.A. Okay, so they were out there, but they were back in New York uh, looking for artists. Mm -hmm. And he and his partner, what was that guy's name? You would know. Walter Hobbs. There we go. Thank you, <laughs> Walter Hobbs. Thank you. Went to Warhol's uh, uh, sort of townhouse on the Upper mm -hmm. East Side, and they went past all these cartoon-like drawings and paintings that, and prints that, uh, that Warhol was doing. And they sat down in the living room, and there was this shuffling sound from above, and it just kept going. And Warhol didn't seem to be bothered by it. And finally, uh, Irving said, Andy, what, what's going on? He said, oh, that's my mother. She's just there. She never comes down. So you know, Warhol even then was an odd fellow, but Blum saw the point of him and said, I'm going to give you a show. And uh, this is the famous story. I'm going to mm -hmm. give you a show. And, and you're going to love it because it's in Hollywood. And Hollywood is where all the stars are. And Warhol's eyes lit up, Hollywood, stars. So he allowed Blum to, to show these fabulous Campbell soup can paintings, which were the early ones that had all been actually painted mm. by Warhol, who actually had a great technical expertise. And I think there were 10 or 12 of them. Um, uh, no, there were 32. That 32 flavors, 32 cans, 32 paintings. And so they, they had this opening, and Dennis Hopper bought one, and a few other people bought them. Four. He sold four. Four. Okay. And at the end of that day or week, uh, he thought about this. He thought, why, do, why don't I just sell four of those? Why don't I get them back and just keep the whole series, and one day it might be valuable? 
and he persuaded Dennis Hopper to give back the one he bought and the others to give back the ones. And he was right. He ended up selling it for, I think, $15 million and change to MoMA years later. Um, so I don't know where we started, but that that's was, where I am. That, that, the, the book is full of great stories like this, but one of the things that um, process, I'm very interested in creative process, and each of these stories, I mean, we could be here for days telling these individual <laughs> stories about how these are all these dealers and these artists and what they did. But what you do so successfully in your book is intertwine them all and to make this great, interesting tapestry of what this whole art world and the market and how it went from being an art world to being an art market. Yeah. And I'm wondering, I'm trying to imagine you writing this book, and I'm thinking, how did you do it? I mean, did you have like blue and yellow and orange <laughs> post-it notes in front of you? So it's like the blue is for the dealers, the orange is for the artists, the red is for the uh, the auction houses. I mean, how did you, how did yeah. you get this all these threads on this loom to come out with this book? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> I, I will say. Um, actually, I am a demon outliner, and I learned this from my years at Vanity Fair. Everything that I uh, read for a story, a Vanity Fair story, everything that, um, every interview I do, I go through and I just <coughs> cut and paste all the bits. And it's like one of those puzzles where you keep sliding the pieces around until you get the picture. And I actually feel by the time I finish an outline that it's, it's at least as long as the story itself. And so I start going along with two columns on my screen. One is the outline and one is the story that I'm beginning to write. And it's, it, it's enormously helpful. It keeps me from going you know, into the ditch. It, it, it doesn't solve all the problems <laughs> because you do tend to write long mm -hmm. that way. And you know, I, I, I've always written a bit long. And, and, and then you really, at that point, have to do what, was it Faulkner who said, kill all your darlings? Mm -hmm. And you, you have to cut, cut things that aren't absolutely essential. And that's actually harder than the first part. <laughs> But I guess that it did seem to me that there was a, um, an interweaving that, that, uh, that presented itself, and it had to do with in intermingling these stories with the actual chronology mm -hmm. of what was happening. And certainly by the early 00s, you could see how dramatically the, the market was escalating. Mm -hmm. And so that became its own storyline. Uh, even as these other anecdotes were sort of the market going becomes it. a character in the story. Just yeah, like in a funny way, that's true. I, I think that's true. Uh, that led me to the auction houses, mm -hmm. uh, which were were you know always a factor. But actually, one thing I realized about the auction houses is they're actually less powerful than the dealers when you think about it, because anybody, any artists whose work is uh, put up for auction. You know, the day of the auction, the auction house is king. But then the work is sold, and the two don't really tend to have any acquaintance with each other until the artist's next uh, painting goes to auction. Mm -hmm. Whereas a dealer, of course, is, has a relationship with an artist, is actually spending uh, years with him mm -hmm. or her. And that just creates a whole different relationship. At any rate, uh, auction houses were a big deal. But... Sometimes you run up against something which is significant. It's, it's, it's factually important, but you don't necessarily want to spend much time on it. Auctions are that way, auction houses. You know, you had to say how much money was involved, and you had to say how the uh, sales were starting to go up and up and up. But the numbers actually, in the end, are very boring. Mm -hmm. And, and it's a, I felt it was a mistake to, to begin falling into that morass of, of sales numbers. There are interesting characters that are involved with the auction houses and, and you know, like some of the, the really uh, recognized and, and famous auctioneers. Yeah. Uh, you do mention um, Amy Capalazzo, oh, yeah. who was, uh, started out as an art advisor, developed a big firm, merged with uh, the Sotheby's, and started to try to create the kind of relationships yeah. with dealers uh, that the gal that the that uh, exactly. that the dealers had um, with collectors that the dealers had. So you know, trying to skew into the relationship you're talking about. But did you, when you started to you know read about and and uh, and look at those characters, um, they just didn't seem as compelling or interesting as the dealers. No, did? actually, Amy Capalazzo is fascinating. Um, she's a, a, a very vibrant, ambitious 
woman who, as you say, started as an advisor and now has both worked for Sotheby's in this senior capacity, which, which gave her to the shock of everybody in the art world, $50 million. That was the deal that the owner made, that the three principals of art agency partners would get $50 million. So she's a very interesting, even if we stop there, um, but she's also, she's fairly far-sighted about how a, perhaps an auction house can become more like what a dealer's gallery is, or how it can incorporate everything. It kind of goes back to Jeffrey Deitch and, you know, art as an asset. Um, uh, Amy would tell you that they can uh, consistently enough sell art for a profit, that it can be an, an investment. At any rate, uh, no, she was very interesting. But at the end of the day, I found it more interesting to keep going back to the stories that were unfolding. Uh, one, the dealers and the artists. Yeah. Are the real one, one uh, just but before we leave the auction thing, my favorite uh, auction uh, character is Luke Guzier. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his, his name right. But he's the one who, some years ago, he's a very young guy, started having these auctions that, were, uh, that mixed all sorts of art. Mm -hmm. There would be contemporary art, and then there would be uh, old masters, and, and people thought he was crazy. But very wealthy people came in, they were intrigued, and they bought the art, and he made a big, big fortune. And then, and then uh, an even uh, far greater risk came with the da Vinci uh, mm -hmm. uh, painting, the Salvatore Mundi, yeah. where he decided that, and by now he had enough clout at, at Christie's since his sales had gone so well, he said, no, let's put this in the contemporary art section, or, you know, that particular auction. Why? Because that's where the billionaires go. Yeah. Uh, they go to the contemporary art section. We'll put this Salvatore Monday, you know, Da Vinci painting here, and someone will pay a premium for it. And of course, someone did, $450 million. That was entirely Luke Guzier's brilliant. And then you mentioned something in the book about something funny that, that the critic Jerry Salt said about what he thought the reason was that they yes. put the, that picture in the contemporary yes, art. Yes, yes. Jerry Saltz, who's really a wonderful critic, I'm sure many of you have read his columns. He said that it's, um, no, no, you tell, I'm, I'm getting a little mixed up. He said that the reason, he thought that the reason that this picture had been put in the contemporary auction oh, yes. because it had been restored so many times that it was basically a contemporary work of art. <laughs> that most of the painting was yesterday. And, and, and there is further speculation. Correct. That, that he may be correct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, yes, Jerry, uh, Jerry has a number of things I quote shamelessly in this book. One of them is that he says, you know, I freely admit that in the future, only 15% of this contemporary art is, is going to be with us still. The rest will be completely forgotten. Unfortunately, we don't know which 15% it is. Right. Like, you have your 15%. That's what 15%, history is for. <laughs> and, and I have my 15% uh, of what will, I think will remain, uh -huh. I should say. But um, nobody knows until history tells us. Um, so... There's another aspect of this market story that you do touch on, but don't go super deeply into, and that is the role of, of curators and museums in the, the building of the art market. And yes. I do feel, you know, having been a museum curator and now a director for, you know, in my 30-year professional career, that curators used to have a lot of power and influence in the building of artists' reputations. When I think about Henry Gelsalder, sure. who many people in this room know or know of, who basically introduced the whole concept of contemporary art to the Metropolitan Museum yeah. of Art, who, who, who wielded a tremendous amount of power in the, in the development of artists' careers and in the, their gaining a market share uh, by being engaged with museums. And that power structure seems to have shifted quite substantially. Um, well, I, I think it has, although I'd, I'd um, love to hear more from you about this and, and really go back and forth on it, because you're, you're the expert and you're the, the director. But it seems to me that there are, in, in any situation where a lot of art is about to be loaned to a museum, there are three players. Uh, you know, there's the dealer, uh, there's the uh, curator, and then there's the collector who might have uh, the art that is going to the museum. And I have to confess that I'm skeptical of that setup. It seems to me that what you often end up hearing about is that um, uh, uh, dealers are asked by the museum to underwrite a lot of the costs mm -hmm. um, because the museum simply doesn't have the money to pay for the huge cost, the insurance, all this stuff. When you have 
very expensive paintings moving from point A to point B. So I understand that. But it does sort of um, put the, it, it does leave the museum in a somewhat vulnerable place. And then when the collector gets involved, he may dictate as to which of his pieces are going to go in the show. That may affect, actually, his own works. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. Do yeah. you think that that's well? Uh, I, I will say that uh, too complex. Or? Rarely do um, collectors who own works of art that museums are seeking to include in exhibitions negotiate not that picture but another one. Yeah. If I'm looking to borrow a particular Helen Frankenthaler from a collector who has the work, that's the one I want. Yeah. But I will say that there are certain collectors who will say something like, I will lend my picture as long as I know that it's reproduced in the catalog. Or I have actually known um, collectors to say, I will lend my picture if it's on the cover of the catalog. And then, then you have to balance, you know, as the curator, you have to balance, do I need that picture enough to acquiesce sure. to and, that? And after all, the, the collector is not just saying that out of ego he would like to see his collection rise in value. And if, the, if his, and I love this phrase, collecting in depth, right? Yeah. That, that these, there are a number of well-known collectors in New York who collect in depth, so. Well, don't do that, because they do. They do, yeah. but what they do is they have, let's say, six or eight uh, Christopher Wools instead mm -hmm. of one, mm -hmm. and if they succeed in getting that Christopher Wool on the front of the catalog, probably the other Christopher Wools will go up in value. And, and some collectors who are basically, you know, if you talk about something else that you bring up in your book, which I think is, you know, certainly a, a complication in the world that we all live in now, there used to be, I mean, there still are collectors who really collect, yeah. who collect in depth because they actually care about the careers of these artists right. and want to be able to explore and understand them. Right. Uh, uh, Eli Brode is sure. that kind of collector. Sure. Then there are collectors, and I will do this, like <laughs> Charles Saatchi, mm. who is not really a collector. He's a dealer. Yeah. Or the Mugrabis, right. who are not really collectors who in that sense. 800 Warhols. If uh, because he's, he's basically <clears throat> a dealer. Yeah. So if you look at the old model of the Fricks and the Carnegies and the Corcorans of this world, those people were collectors, and they mm -hmm. kept their collections together. Uh, Glenn Stone, mm. uh, Mr. Rails, and his wife are another example of this new kind of paradigm of making a private museum, uh, which turns into a public museum. I mean, the, the Frick and the Carnegie and, and uh, the Corcoran. But let's pause on that one, because yes. Glenn Stone is so interesting. It's, it's, it, I believe it's now the biggest private museum in the yes. country, thanks to its recent expansion. It may be close to the biggest museum <laughs> in this country, right. other than the Metropolitan um, Museum of Art. And, and, and Mitch and Emily Rails uh, are interesting, intriguing characters, very, very private. Uh, I'll just say briefly that one thing, it's sort of a great story. Mitch Rails, who made an enormous amount of money on Wall Street in the 80s, found himself on a fishing trip in Russia and was in a helicopter. And the helicopter came down to the tarmac, and he got out, walked away, and he'd gotten no more than 10 feet when the helicopter burst into flames. And he took that as a sign <laughs> that he should stop worrying so much about making Carpe money. Carpe diem, right? <laughs> Carpe diem. And so at that point, he left his wife. He married Emily. <laughs> She was working at uh, the Matthew Marks Gallery, and you know, that's how it works in the art world. <laughs> and they have created a, uh, a wonderful museum. I'll, I'll just give you a, a little sense of how naive I was at the beginning of this book. My wife and I got a reservation, which you needed to get ahead of time, to mm. go see uh, the Glenstone. And I was really excited because the rails uh, are known for having... Um, begun their extremely ambitious collecting right after the war and, and, and to collect right on through to the present, which is my, the whole period I was looking at. I was so interested. And so we got there. It's outside of Washington, Potomac, I think. And we walked in, and there was no de Koonings, no Pollocks, no anything, except these little strands of wool, these little, you know? And I said, what's going on? And there were these people, there were guards, there were security guards standing by the wool. Well, it turns out there's a conceptual uh, or minimalist, if you will, painter named Fred Sandback, mm -hmm. no longer with us. And I get now that he's important, mm -hmm. but I'm still annoyed that, <laughs> that that's what I saw when I got there. At any rate, back to the private museum. It's, it's got a lot of power, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, it, it, it can do a lot of dictating. Does that 
bother you? Uh, it doesn't bother me. Uh, I mean, just as a director, knowing that when you're going to go to them, they are they're going to call the shots because they've got all the money and they've got you know all the art. Well, I think that they don't necessarily call the shots. I think that you know, what I won't say that it bothers me, but I think one of the effects of this yeah. movement towards private art museums uh, has been that people and Mitch Rails is a very good example. He was a trustee at the Hirshhorn mm -hmm. Museum and was a, you know, a, a, not only a, a good uh, working trustee, but he also supported them very substantially financially. Mm. When he decided to open his own museum, that meant that he stopped supporting mm. the, the Hirshhorn at that rate. Yeah. And so if there's anything that's impacting public institutions in this new billionaire uh, mega private museum movement, is that we are not getting the support uh, from those people that, um, that we were getting mm. or would have expected to receive. Yeah. So right now, Glenstone is basically a private museum. These, they're still alive. Um, you can go there, but you have to make a reservation. But if you look historically, and you go back to the Fricks, the Carnegies, sure. and the Corcorans, they, they were essentially doing the same thing. The difference was that they actually built yeah. public institutions, even Mr. Parrish, yeah. in his own small way, when he started his museum in 1898, it was with his collection. Yeah. And he built it with a certain sense of noblesse oblige, mm -hmm. that he had the means to acquire these works of art and that they should be made available to the public. Right. Yeah. So therein lies a little bit of the problem, is that, um, that that that's part of the story. The other part of the story, this could potentially be another book. Hmm. Uh, the other part of the story is, is that a lot of these collectors are using uh, the notion of a museum with public hours, even though they may be minuscule, mm. uh, as ways to avoid paying taxes on the purchases right. that they make for their private museums because they form foundations, they say it's public, yeah. uh, and, that, you know, and that there's tax implications for that. So we're getting a little bit you know, astray from you know, the market, yes. but, uh, but it all kind of does fold in. Well, here's a nice little jump then. Billionaires, we've, yes. we've sort of been talking about them. I think inevitably they became an important part of the story because mm -hmm. in 1987, Forbes put its first billionaires list and I think there were a couple hundred. There are now a couple of thousand. Um, and you know, it's, it's, a, a, it's a fascinating, un, undeniable part of the story that uh, they have profoundly changed the contemporary art market. First of all, they all love contemporary art. Mm. You know, very few of them go for old masters. Mm -hmm. um, why? Well, they may just like it viscerally, or it also may be that you don't have to know too much, uh, uh, relative <laughs> speaking. I mean, you know, with old masters, you need to know you know, the whole provenance, you, you need to go back several hundred years, you need to, to determine whether it was, it was actually this great old master or whether it was his assistants mm -hmm. in, the, in the studio, et cetera. Contemporary art, with the, the occasional exception of something like the Nodler Gallery, which you were talking about, where frauds did get produced, you know, it's, it, it doesn't go back as far. It's, it's easier to see, to understand, to, to buy. And, and that's another thing that's kind of interesting about it. You can buy, a, uh, with, with many artists, you can buy hundreds and hundreds of their works. They, you know, some artists only paint 10 things a year, and some of them have uh, assembly lines, mm. you know, uh, going back to, to Warhol. Mm. At any rate, billionaires, very important. Because <laughs> once they are billionaires, they really have very little else to do with their money uh, after they bought their yachts and their homes and everything yeah. else. So they buy art. And that has had uh, you know, a profound effect on the market, um, it has led to this whole phenomena of the mega dealers. Mm -hmm. and, and we certainly shouldn't uh, end this conversation without talking about them because uh, you know, there are four of them, maybe most of you know, right? Gagosian is one, David Zwerner is another, Iwan Wirth is the third, and Arnie Glimscher is the fourth from, from Pace. Um, all fascinating people and I'm, I'm Happy to tell you that I interviewed, got all of them to sit for interviews, and that was <clears throat> that took a lot of doing uh, over over a couple of years. Um, that was actually more challenging than the organizing and outlining. Was just getting those people to talk, and I can I can tell you that it was sort of it's sort of like high school. You know, mm -hmm. everybody wants to be in the cool group. So <laughs> once one. I had interviewed three or four. <clears throat> 
well-known dealers. Then I'd go to the next one. I'd say, oh, and I've talked to so-and-so. Would you talk to me? And I had to get right on up that food chain to the very tippy top where I had interviewed the other three megas and everybody else before Larry said, okay. Mm -hmm. And then he was actually very civil, and we talked for a couple hours on the record, to my amazement. Did anybody refuse? Um, a few people refused. Let's see, Matthew Marks is a, a fascinating dealer. I wish I could have gotten him to talk, but he, he, I've never seen an interview that he's done. Mm -hmm. uh, he's very, very private. Um, but most of them, uh, I would say 95% of them I got because they're proud of what they do, and if the other guys are being interviewed, they want to be interviewed too. You know? so, What's your favorite story in the book? I would say that my favorite story is the one that got me started on this book, and it, it takes us back to the beginning, which is the story of Ben Heller. Ben Heller was early on a, a major collector of abstract expressionist art, the art that was coming out after the war, the art that, that Sidney Janis and Betty Parsons were, were advocating for. So Ben Heller, actually like Leo Castelli, worked for his father-in-law's knitwear company. What are the chances <laughs> of that coincidence? At any rate, one weekend, he was out here uh, in the Hamptons. Uh, He's about 25 or 6 by then. And he uh, heard that Leo Castelli and his wife were out. And he went up to them and he said, I've been trying to get to uh, Jackson Pollock. I'd like, I'd like to maybe buy one of his paintings. And of course, Pollock by then was out in the Springs, right? This was 1940, uh, no, it was about 1950. All right, so mm -hmm. Pollock um, and uh, uh, his wife, uh, Lee, had been out there for several years. Castelli just gave him the phone number, said, you call him yourself. So Ben Heller called. Pollock said, okay, come on over. So Ben and his wife went over there. They had dinner with the Pollocks. Heller was a little uh, nervous about suggesting that he buy one of Pollock's paintings, even after Pollock walked him out to the back where that, and we can now see that, you know, from the Pollock house, there was, there was that uh, shed that he used as his, as his studio. But he worked up the nerve to say, uh, would you think about selling one of these to me? And actually, Pollock was delighted to sell one to him because he tried to sell this very big one called <laughs> One for a couple of years. I think he was either represented by Betty Parsons or Sidney Janis, one and then the other. No one could sell it. Heller said, I'll take it. And it was a very long, almost like a mural. And Pollock said, well, what will you pay for it? And uh, Heller said, well, um, uh, I know that the highest price you're paintings have yet received is 8000 so I'm happy to pay $8,000 as long as it can be in, in installments. And they said, fine. Then they had to simply get the painting <laughs> into Heller's car and take it to Riverside Drive, where he lived. Uh -huh. Well, that was a little harder than, you know, it should have been because <laughs> the painting was this big. Um, it, it was about nine feet high, uh -huh. and it was about 20 feet long, I think. And so... Pollock said, don't worry, we'll take it in my pickup. So he rolls up the painting, which, you know, stunned Heller right there. And they put, him in the, put it in the, in the pickup truck. Pollock drove it into the city, the two men with the painting. They get to the address on Riverside Drive, and they realize that it's too tall to go <laughs> in the elevator cab. So a friendly super says, don't worry, I can solve this. He lowers the elevator so that they can stand on top of it uh -huh. with the painting now wrapped up, rolled up. So they go up to uh, Heller's apartment and they, they put it against the wall and they realize it's too high for the wall. <laughs> so Pollock says, no problem. And he takes out this industrial stapler and staples it to the wall. Anyway, that was sort of the way things were at that time. And when I heard that story, I thought, okay, I've, I've got a book. And you said that you were basically a novice when you started this, so there was a huge learning curve, you know, lear you know yes. learning that Fred Sandback was actually an artist, even though that he basically sculpted in space. What was your biggest surprise of, of all of the things that you learned? Of all the things I learned, um, well, I, I guess one thing I would say is that nobody knows everything. You know, I came into this thinking um, that I was at the beginning of a very long curve and, I, and, I, and everyone else knew more than I did. And it is true, actually, everybody did know more than I did. But it surprised me that, that others have their own uh, gaps, if you will. Um, and, and so it, it has surprised me pleasantly that this, the book's very nice reception has involved people coming up to me who actually are quite expert in the art world and saying, 
I really loved your book because I didn't know this and this and this. I, I, it just surprised me, but maybe it shouldn't. I mean, who of us really does know everything about contemporary art? Well, of course, one of the thrills for me in reading the book, or one of the fun parts of reading the book, um, was when I could make a personal connection to, to some mm -hmm. of your stories. Because, I mean, that's what people do in telling stories, that they like, sure. to, like to find comedy. And one of my favorite stories, of course, that has something to do with me, which is why I liked it so much, was your description of how the, uh, the dealer, Jack Shaneman, who was a young guy, um, discovered one of the first contemporary African-American artists that gained major prominence in the, in the art market as opposed to the art world, and that's Kerry James Marshall. Mm. And that he had discovered him when he was visiting with someone and saw a little announcement card for his show and, and realized that it was an artist that he was interested in. Well, the little announcement card was from an exhibition that he'd had at, uh, at his gallery in Los Angeles, which is the same card I saw mm. when I was making studio visits in Chicago mm. for the Corcoran 1992 painting biennial. And I was visiting, I think it was Phyllis Bramson, I can't remember exactly. And I saw this card and I was immediately drawn to it. And I mm -hmm. said, who is this guy? And I looked on the back of it and I said, well, you know, it's an LA dealer, so I get, you know, he probably is in LA and, uh, and I'll call a dealer. And she said, well, no, his name is Kerry Marshall and he actually lives here in Chicago. So I was able to go and visit him and I subsequently um, did put several of his works into that 1992 biennial. In the meantime, Jack Shaman on a parallel track, who was a very close friend of mine, lived, his parents lived next door to me in Washington, DC, was working with him you know, to mount a show, which he did in 1991. And in your book, you mentioned that out of that show, even though the works were absolutely extraordinary, he only sold three pieces, one to a private collector and two to art museums. And one of those. Here was one of them. And I was one of the curators that, that purchased that. And I paid $7,000, which you mentioned in the book, uh, for that piece, which is now in the, the collection of the uh, National Gallery of Art. And it's probably worth $700,000 well, or $7,000,000. Especially because uh, his art sold recently to Puff Daddy for $21,000,000. Yeah. Yeah. But there's one other little, uh, just an epilogue to that story that uh, Shaman was so mortified that he had sold Marshall on the idea of having a New York show and that Marshall would sell all his works out. And he said, um, Carrie, I'm just so sorry. I guess I just uh, you know, overestimated. He said, well, maybe white collectors just don't like to see black faces on their walls. And Jack said, well, maybe you're right. Yeah. Um, and happily, um, that is no longer the case. I mean, one of the other things, uh, that I found out from my book, and that's in through through a whole chapter, is the evolution of of black artists not only amid a, a sort of cognoscenti, but among you know major collectors. Yeah. Um, whether it's Kerry James Marshall or Rashid Johnson, Mark Bradford, all fascinating yeah. stories. That's a, actually a wonderful chapter in that book too. I mean, it's a wonderful book, and 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 uh, Michael is going to sign some uh, after the after the talk, and you should definitely read it because even though it's really talking about the art market, there's a lot of tr great stories, for one thing, and tremendous information uh, about the evolution of uh, contemporary art in this country. Mm. So, Michael, thank you so much. Sure. This was such a pleasure. Well, you're very welcome.